So I want to ex help. I want to uh, explore what we're doing here. Fair enough. We each think we know, but let's see. Let's see. <clears throat> now, the first thing that comes to mind is that whatever we're doing here must be very simple, has to be very simple. Because in essence, the truth is very simple. It's there, right? It's whether we want to open our eyes to it or not. And the complexity comes in trying to shield the glare of the truth from our eyes. So we have to kind of dance in different kind of configured ways to keep the shadows enough so that we just get a little glimpse of the truth, not the whole bright show all at one time. But it's there, and it's very simple. So let's keep our practices in line with that sim simpleness. Not simplicity in the sense that it's simple, it's simple, but it's not facile or easy. Now, uh, I have a story about that. When I was a monk in Thailand, a Tibetan monk visited me. And this is not a, a judgment on Tibetan practice, but we sat in a cottage where I uh, was staying. And we were, he spoke English. And we talked about the practices we were doing. And so I asked him what he was doing. I was interested. And he took about, it took about 30 minutes, conservatively, for him to tell me what he was doing. Prostrations, and this kind of mantra, and that kind of mantra, and this visualization, and opening up to this particular deity, and that. And, and I was like, wow. At that point, I thought, that's an amazing practice. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like he must be going somewhere. And then he said, and what do you do? And I said, well, I quiet myself so I can see things the way they are. Period. <laughs> How long did that take? About four seconds. And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? Now, I knew exactly what I was talking about. Because it stayed very simple. It was very simply stated. And I knew when I was off base because I knew that I wasn't seeing the way things are. I was seeing according to how I wanted them to be or according to my thoughts or opinions about something. And that guidance system kept me sort of on the ball, on the focus, sort of in course with the line that I knew was straight. And so the simpler we are, the more we know when we're off base. And the narrower and straighter that direction takes. So when the Buddha was asked, you know, I, I, I foresee a discussion amongst some monks around him perhaps a discussion of what this meant in relationship to that. What does the five spiritual faculties have to do with the four 
this is in the seven factors. How do those fit into the to the threes characteristics? And I, I can just see them all kind of. And the Buddha must have just gotten. Uh, this is my rendition. It must have gotten <laughs> perturbed and said, "Wait a second, hold it. I teach one thing. Okay, I teach suffering to the end of suffering. That silenced everyone." See, that's the straight, that's the very linear relationship to what I'm doing in respect to that dimension of suffering, struggle. And whether what I'm doing is enhancing that struggle or it's in line with the remedy of releasing the need to struggle and coming to more contentment and ease. Very simple. Very simple, but Oh my, how we lose our way. Because the mental frame of reference that we come into practice is not so simple. It's a very complex mental design in here. And the more complex it is, the more it can master it. And the feeling of mastery is often the way we go because that's, that gives us an egoic prominence that's a simplicity doesn't. Now there's a thing called spiritual posturing, which I see in some students who have practiced many years. And that is that they want that known when they come in interviews or what. That's the most important thing for them to communicate is how long and their duration of practice is, which really means nothing to me. What means far more to me is the humility in which they come. That shows the practice. The other is hubris. hubris. And that shows not the practice working, but their egoic image and need for a reputation within the practice. Let us stay very simple. This is very simple. I'll show you how simple it is by changing metaphors. Think of freedom as entering completely in now, the present moment. When we step into dead center presence, dead center now, the king has no clothes. We are stripped from all the ways that we hold ourselves back from the present. All the conversations we hold about the present and how we'd like to get into the present moment, or what freedom is, or what I am, and how I'm doing in relationship to getting into the present. All those are ways to buffer ourselves or distance ourselves from being in the present. And what's the remedy? To be quiet. Now that's too dramatic and drastic for most people because that raw exposure to the truth 
of their own being. For most people, is too, it's too much. It's an overload of circuits. It overloads the circuits. So what we usually do is we come way out from now and we circle it like a moth. And practice is that encircling. And sometimes we dip a little, go in there a little bit, and we have insights and revelations, and then we come straight out, and we comment and dialogue inwardly about what we just saw, and we stay outside, and that's very nice because we had enough taste of now. And then at some point, often... uh, by seemingly accident, an accident, we may even fly in the center of it like a moth would, and the flames devour us. That's awakening. Sound good? <laughs> That's why we don't do it. <laughs> Sounds awful. Who wants to do that? <laughs> but when you are at dead center of now, it's an identity crisis. It's a complete change of identity, a complete uprooting of the old identity. And it's a figure ground switch. What we thought what we were is, birth, is being birthed from something far vaster, far vaster. Far. And that, but having flown in, regardless if it's accidental, and sometimes it's literally accidental, people come out not having prepared sufficiently to go in, and it shakes them, tremendously shakes them. And so part of the circling of the flame is preparation for the dip in. But what happens, and I see this in many people, is that they, they kind of like the circling. The circling becomes the reason that they're practicing. The means becomes the end. And we circle to circle. We meditate because we love to meditate. So if you're doing that, I'm not going to pull the rug out from that. If you want to do that, that's fine. Just know that you're doing it. That's all. Just know you're doing it. Be very honest with the motivating reasons for what we're doing all along the way. So as we go in and out of the flame, it imparts certain knowing, certain knowledge to us, certain wisdom. And that prepares us, you might say, for the eventual plunge into the flame itself. And so there is a way that practice strengthens our ability to handle the result to be able to hold the truth of what the flame will show us. 
But the big question is, and this is the real question, we can handle most of the Dharma. We can handle the fact that we're creating our own suffering. We can handle the fact that there is impermanence and that life is a verb, not a noun. We can handle that pretty easy. We can, we can adapt to that. But the one quality that really requires a maturing to that flame is the sense that we may not be what we seem. And that, that really, we don't, that one, I'm not so sure about, we say to ourselves. What am I going to lose here on my flight in? And we look at ourselves, and that's really what an interview is. We look at all the reasons that we really don't want to go there. That we're kind of fine where we are. The holding patterns, the flight the distance, it's enough. Again, it is of nobody's urgency but your own. It, no one should beckon or call you to where you do not want to go. No teacher or no teaching. But the one thing I would suggest if, is if we do find ourselves in that holding pattern is to really examine the need for what we think we should have or want to have or want to contain or continue to believe in, about ourselves that makes going into the flame seem so dangerous and treacherous. Now it can be an early childhood, very damaging inscription, self-assumption. It can have like the sense that there's something wrong with me. And we believe it so strongly that that field of conversation gets stuck. And therefore, the distance to the flame will always be measured by how fully we believe that convicted self-assumption. There's something wrong with me. I'm disadvantaged. There are lots of different root assumptions that each of us maintain at the expense of a greater freedom if we were willing to give them up. Because the distance we are from the flame is the degree that we are formed. Now I want to bring the diagram that I offered for each of you as a handout. The way I am going to be working in my talks is not from suffering to the end of suffering, although I use that in, often in a, in a synchronistic way, to form to formlessness. They're identical. And let me express their identity, how they're equal to you, so that you can get a sense of why we're talking about one and the same thing when we're talking about either continuum. The reason we suffer is because we are distant from the flame, from the center, from, our, from the truth of our life, from the truth 
of our being. And the further we stray from that, the more conversations we have about that, the more we're formed in relationship to ourselves through that conversation. We tell ourselves what we are. And even though that seems so ludicrous, that's essentially what each one of us is. A prolonged narrative about ourselves that is so believed that we refuse to acknowledge the truth of our stillness. And so we maintain that story, that narrative, as I mentioned, for lots of different reasons. But all along the way, it forms us. It keeps us very distant from our freedom. It keeps us very distant from the center of the flame. And there's no way for us to talk our way into the flame because that's just more conversation. And there's no way for us to talk us out of the narrative because that's just another story of the narrative. There is virtually nothing we can do about the distance we are from the flame because anything we do or say, is increasing the distance from the flame. That's why we have to keep it simple. If we have elaborate plans for ourselves, routes of entry, clever strategies for moving into the flame, We have to go way out this way and that way and then turn left and go two miles to the north. Fly overhead, look at the flame, take a picture, but fly two miles south. (laughs) Say 100,000 prostrations and then what? In each direction, we are now six miles northeast of where we were. (laughs) What is the remedy? What is it, you see? It's right at hand. But to those of us who have committed, inclined our mind towards ourself, those of us who like or feel that we are undeserving of entering that flame, or like ourselves too much to eliminate the appeasement it gives me to be myself, we'll just keep jabbering. We won't find our way in. That's why the root issues in ourselves are so important, because that's how close we can come. We can't get any closer because those are the absolute truths we believe about ourselves. And when we have an absolute truth, it puts a stake in the ground that keeps us from venturing forth. So is this what you want, you see? We're looking at the cold, hard facts. 
fait. What's that flame really like? Because inside, we can feel the pull. And if it was so hideous, why would it have that kind of urgency, that kind of longing associated with it? So we will, in our own time, perhaps we'll trip and fall into it. Perhaps after years of deliberation and working on ourselves, we'll fly into it willfully, releasing, releasing ourselves all along the way. But the spiritual journey for most of us, is the journey from self-formation. The absolute conviction of being the person we have learned that we are through our history, through our memory, through our photo albums, to the nothing at the center of now. Nothing is the wrong word. I use the word nothing, formlessness, because it's the opposite of form. But formlessness is not nothing. Is the seat of aliveness nothing? Is presence nothing? But presence can only be entered formlessly. That's why it's called formless presence. It requires the stillness we are not willing to offer to keep ourselves in form. So as long as I'm talking, I'll know who I am. You see, somewhere along the line, we signed a contract with Mara. Let's get it a little bit. <laughs> and here was what it was. It says, okay, Maura, says, sit down, Rodney. <laughs> Here's the contract. Here's the bad side. I'm sorry about this side, but I got a lot to make up for it. But here's, what's a, here's what you don't get. You don't get reality. Oh, okay, but what do I get? Well, you get your world. You get the world you want. You get the world of your own creation. You get the sense of you being separate and therefore determined. You have the ability to determine yourself, to control what it is that you're doing or not doing. You get that power, that personal power, that personal power and control. And I think, hmm, that's a pretty good deal. Let me sign. So we take that on. And it works for us for a great deal of time. And we have our little fiefdom. (laughs) And it feels pretty good. And even though things hurt, we have the ability to deflect that hurt 
by just not being accountable. And so, yes, it hurts, but it's your fault. You make me angry. And that way, I stay in my fiefdom. You're the problem. And everything is well served. Okay? That's how this thing works. So I get my autonomy. And even when I have to own the accountability for something, for instance, my anger, I still, there's something that arises with the anger that makes me very hesitant to give the anger up. And that's my righteousness. Because there's nothing better than being the king of your fiefdom, that be the sense of the power accrued that righteousness gives us. I am right. Whoa. Especially having lived through many of the childhoods in which we were or have a sense of ourselves as being so wrong. But in this instance, I am right. Even though anger arises, I'll hold on to the anger because the righteousness is more important to me. You see how it's, it's, always, it's always one side or the other. So it's always, you know, am I getting the, am I milking this thing the best way for me or is it? The Buddha said something that was very important. He says, if you look at the benefits of what you're getting within your struggle, that will pale by comparison to what you're not getting in terms of the struggle itself. That's interesting. So there is our method, our way into the flame of now. Wherever we're stuck, the Buddha says, examine that. Examine the reason you refuse to go any further. But the examination needs to come from both sides. It isn't just what is what we usually do, a kind of judgmental critique of what's going on. Yeah, I know I'm suffering. It's awful. I don't seem to be able to get over it. But I'm going to, you know... Bear with it and I'll move this thing forward. That's not good enough. There is a reason that we stay fixed outside, a distant from the flame. There is a benefit we get from doing that. And we have to enter into that deceit, to that contract we have with that particular assumption and see what benefit we're getting. What is the benefit of me feeling undeserving? Of me feeling like a mistake? What do I get from that? Well, I get my, I can, I mean, I'll tell you what I get. You can, (laughs) I get my history. I get my feelings corrected and seen for all the people who told me I was a mistake. Well, so I get my righteousness. I get my sense of distinction, perhaps nobility, because I'm working myself out of being a mistake. I get whatever fill in the blank. Now we ask what is the limitation? 
I can't fly any further into the flame. That certainly is a limitation. Plus it hurts. I have muscles that ache and tensions that won't go away and I have headaches and migraines and ulcers on and on. And so we begin through that examination, again through honesty. Let me see. Let me just look. Exactly what I said in that cottage, probably in 1980. Let me just quiet and see. That's all. That's the practice. And lo and behold, the quieter I become, the more I see. The more I see, the less I resist. The less I resist, the closer to the flame I come. Is the flame hot? Not if there's nothing to burn out. Is awareness hot? Or is it inviting? And the closer I come, the pull of that longing stirs me yet again to really look at the issues that are keeping me from it. The pull has its effect exactly the same way that righteousness had its opposite effect. And the self-beliefs and assumptions kept me swimming counter to the currents of my desire, my urge to go in. But now as I'm working on those limitations, I began the currents pick up. And what also happens is our humility becomes ripe. True humility, not the pretense of humility. The seeing of absolute equality, that seeing of that, the knowing of divinity in oneself and external to oneself are absolutely identical. Where is there any room for arrogance? Argument. And so the way towards is simply the willingness to see. And little phrases help, like add nothing to this moment. Because anything I add distances me from the moment. So add nothing to this moment. See and add nothing to this moment. Is nothing enough? Nothing's happening. Is that enough? 
But there is another step I want to take just a few minutes and talk about. And that's the full embodiment of the insights we do have. Oftentimes, we like to stay out, we like to be touched by the flame, feel its warmth, called an insight. Have that realization, but keep it kind of as a profound intellectual process in our mind. So we can ruminate within the insight. And I have seen years and years of just that happening to students. They don't give themselves over. They don't live in alignment with the insight. How many of us in this room have seen, perhaps all of us, that time is a mental construct, past, future thoughts, right? I'm sure with a degree of practice, perhaps everyone in the room has had that insight. How many of us live it? You see what it takes? That throws us off. That is taking our life and skewing it in a way that is not, I'm not, is not acceptable. A single insight denied, then you have the entire shift back into the mental frame of reference from which you came. It is an all-inclusive turning towards the flame. It's not a sideway glance or blow. And we have an opportunity within this time we are here. Nobody's watching to start living what we know. To watch how frames mind states. We know mind states. We've lived through every one. How many times? How many of us live the understanding of the impermanence of a state of mind or the impersonal nature of a state of mind? How many of us are willing to sit through a state of mind and not give ourselves over to it in action, in thought, in belief. How many of us get enamored with the state of mind? Because a story starts coming from that state of mind that churns up past memories of who we were the last time we had this state of mind or how something happened and how, and then off we are, off we go. Yet we know the impersonal quality of a state of mind and its impermanence. One moment we feel this way, the next moment we're equally 
with equal conviction, we feel a different way. And this is an absolute truth, and this is an absolute truth. Or take one of the hindrances that come. I'm sleepy. 20 years, had just a hard time sleep, just sleepy. You're sleepy. Granted. But what part of your life isn't sleepy? What isn't sleepy? What is not sleepy? You're sleepy. I'll give you that. Do we ask ourselves that question? What in this moment is not sleepy? That no sleepiness, but isn't itself not sleepy? This doesn't, we don't go towards the flame without standing up to the very conditioning that's kept us away. We have to show up for that conditioning. We have to put all of our chips on the table. This isn't game playing here. When we get around to it, never comes. Prolonged procrastination. That's why, which I, this is, this is not my style of practice. It'll happen in some other lifetime. Yeah? Well, how many lifetimes have you said that? It's now to rise up in courage and strength and conviction, to look, to see, just seeing, just letting what was unconscious be conscious. It's not going to do anything more to us than it's already done, and a lot less once we allow it to become conscious. It's not as if it comes into the material truth of itself by making it conscious. We just make it conscious and it takes the power out of it. That's all. So if we face ourselves all along the way, we extract the power that it's had over us through that willingness to just see it. That's the story of the game. That's the journey we're taking. Just seeing. May it be so for us all. Can we just sit for a minute or two? So how do you sit, you see? Like you've sat 
a thousand times before, or is this a, is the aliveness, if you come to sit within the aliveness itself? Or are you on the path, the journey to making yourself alive? Are you in the middle of now or somewhere far out, languishing within the remarks you're making about yourself? the assumptions you have of how much more you have to do. The distance yet to be covered. All the ways that you aren't fully mature in your paramis. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.